Welcome to What Do You Think? And we are death, destroyers of worlds, aren't we, C? For the past couple of episodes, I've been uh, singing the intro song, but there really isn't one for this. It's just a, uh, it's just, uh, yes, it's not just death, destroyer of the worlds, but uh, those poor people, those poor people. I know. Although he didn't say that in this movie. he. Uh, but famously, the real person, which... Okay, folks, if you haven't read the title, Al, what movie are we talking about we today? We are reviewing Christopher Nolan's newest film, Oppenheimer. The the much-awaited Oppenheimer, because he he's talked about wanting to do a biopic about him for a while, right? Like, since... Uh, for a while, I, I mean, he, he, <clears throat> I don't know when he read American Prometheus, which is the biography... Bi- biography that it's based off of uh that got published in 2005 um he just talks about how he okay. read it and how he really wanted to make it into a movie um mm-hmm. and folks the the thing is is that so uh, first of all i'm al pc blah 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 blah. oh yeah well, yeah well, they know it's episode 70 i'd hope they know yeah, yeah, yeah. me too i'd point. hope they know um so christopher nolan Mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan. What, what, what's there to say? Is this the first Nolan movie we're talking about? <laughs> yeah. Oh, was, well, okay. You're right. No, we didn't. We weren't doing this in, during Tenet. What am I yeah. thinking? Yeah. Um. Like, listen. He. For for like. He leaves me speechless sometimes. You know, it's it's you have a guy who, is probably at the top of his game and it's like there's no one else there's barely anyone else who's like at his level you know i mean like from his generation who else is there like the closest you get and i'm not here to do the debate on this but the closest people go back and forth was is between him and denny Villeneuve. That's yeah, the and, and, and Denny's not even really of his generation. Den- well, uh, yeah, no, he is, he is, he is. I, I, I've heard, I've he heard, is. I've heard Denny. I've heard David Fincher. I've heard. Um, uh, oh, well, yeah, I was about to name some people that aren't of his well, generation. No, no, like, like obviously we have the Giants. We have Scorsese, Spielberg, um, Tarantino, who's like between those two groups. We have um, Ridley Scott, for God's well, sake. Well, yeah, Ridley Scott, who's like between Tarantino and Spielberg and Scorsese. And here's the thing, mm-hmm. though. Uh, Scott, Scorsese, Spielberg, uh, they're, you know, they're they're at the tail end of their careers. And, and when you're at the tail end, it's like Quentin Tarantino famously says, you, you kind of start stumbling. It's why he doesn't want to make more than 10 films or nine films. Yep. Uh, 10? Yeah, it's 10 cents. 10, 10, 10, the Tarantino yeah, 10. Tarantino 10. Uh, because it's like, yeah, you know, you eventually you, you're, you're just going to have more duds than you're going to have successes. And that's mm-hmm. very much true for Spielberg. That's very much true for Scott. Um, Scorsese, it's it's interesting. Scorsese doesn't seem to be missing a lot, but he, he, he he's, he's reached his ceiling you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he's reaching. We're seeing similar. We're seeing similar themes. Yeah. B- basically, like like Scorsese still making hits, still making stuff that we like. It's just they're not mm-hmm. they're not at the level of something like Raging Bull or or Goodfellas. Goodfellas. You know? um, yeah. Or Taxi Driver. Yeah, like, Jesus. Like even like one of my favorite films of his, Silence, it doesn't mm-hmm. hit as well as. 
like uh hell it doesn't hit as well as his last religious themed movie uh last temptation or yeah last temptation of christ like it doesn't hit the same way but nolan though nolan at least for me, Nolan has like he's at the top of his game. He's he he's like to use like athlete terms. He's still in his prime. He's like he's like mm-hmm. Michael Jordan just as he turned uh, twenty eight. He's he's mm-hmm. he's uh, he's Tom Brady. Uh, Tom Brady during the first uh, Patriots dynasty. He's like he, like when it hits. You're just left in awe over over what he's doing, mm-hmm. you know. Now people like to point out that he's he's had some he's had some miss moments, and the thing is, it was simply that he had a people forget Nolan had a span of time where literally every movie he was making in a very quick amount of time was a banger and was incredible and was groundbreaking and changed like, everything. Okay. So then when you have movie, so then when he had a couple, when he had like two movies that weren't that. Okay, but that's not an but, end but, for no, him. But, that's but just, even even then, yeah. I would disagree. I I would say, I mean, I think you and I both agree. Tenet was not um, was not the experience people were kind of demanding of Nolan. You know, well, Tenet, I feel filled the stereotype that his haters were. Saying. Yes, it actually filled yeah that. yeah. I totally agree with that. I, I I think, I think all the criticisms of all the criticisms of Tenet amount to. Um, like, yeah, he's all, he's, he has a concept. He develops no characters around the concept. He barely Mm. cobbles together the story. Like, like I get it. I get it. Mm. Um, I think, I think even recently, uh, when we, when we, right before Tenet, actually, you and I saw all his films and, and and, what an ordeal that wasn't even an ordeal. They were all, they were all like, they were all good. At least, but it's a, but it's a lot to do. No, that. no, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. We, you know, we spread it out over the course of a week and a half. So, but yep. but point is, is that what was up until Tenet? What was what was the common common thing with Nolan? Was that oh, Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar are not good. Like you would have people actually tell you that Dark Knight Rises and and Interstellar are not good movies, um, mm-hmm. or or they would say they're they're mediocre movies. And when we rewatched them, mm-hmm. I think you and I both agreed that. At least with with the Dark Knight Rises, it was that he, it really should have been a two parter, and that yeah. that would have fixed all the problems everyone had with that movie. Yeah. And that with Interstellar, it's like, yeah, it with Interstellar, it's like everything hits up until the third act, just because it mm-hmm. looked like Nolan. Nolan's uncomfortable around like really passionate emotions, you know, really intimate emotions, mm-hmm. and. That you know, that's just who he is. Uh, I and yeah. and but when we rewatched it, we were like, "Holy shit, this is amazing!" And and you know, when yeah. when when I get around to rewatching Tenet, I will see probably the things he was going for, and you're like, "Great," but but the point is, the point I'm trying to make, and and I think on some level you would agree with me. See, is that yeah, is that like Dunkirk, right? Dunkirk, which mm-hmm. was Nolan's take on a war movie, Nolan's take on 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 kind of the perspective of the soldiers during during uh, mm-hmm. operation um oh, i forgot i forgot what was the name of the of the actual like oh geez yeah no i know yeah yeah, yeah, about. yeah yeah uh so the you know they, they're trying to get all these soldiers off of these beaches in dunkirk and take them back home and mm-hmm. i remember when i sat down to watch it, i saw i saw it in the imax screen that i've seen tenet and that i've now seen oppenheimer in same and the one thing I couldn't get out of my head is like Nolan has such 
a firm grasp of like what make like he has such a firm grasp on all like the foundational concepts of filmmaking cinematography editing music composition performance mm-hmm. he has such a firm grasp on it that he he can pretty much like he can pretty much just create something present it mm-hmm. and you're like well yeah that like like you know when someone is so talented that they make something that you're like oh this is like very very like the, the, it just makes sense that it's like this but when you take it all mm-hmm. apart you're like wait how the fuck did he did he put this all together you know what i mean mm-hmm. like no i know and i i i think for the for the record i do think dunkirk is not without its deserving critiques but i, I definitely agree with what you're saying that he definitely he spoiled us i'll put it like that with everything he's made he has raised the bar for himself so much that if there's ever a situation where he doesn't meet it exactly, we almost feel <clears throat> we we almost feel weird, but we still have to acknowledge that what he did was really incredible. Yeah, like the th- the thing is, is that like you know, I I think I let's be honest, the one-two punch of the Dark Knight and Inception, while in many ways gave Nolan the platform he has right now. It also like kind of condemned him to that purgatory that you know after the '80s Spielberg was condemned to, where it's like yep. where it's like you've made you've made like such groundbreaking cinema that you know mm-hmm. we you like you feel like the the cinephiles film critics audiences kind of have to like bring you back. To, you're now fighting against yourself. They're, they're, they're trying the to bring you back down to earth. They're like, Oh, your head's too, mm-hmm. too, too high in the sky. Like, like, you know, uh, Spielberg came out of the eighties. He had produced all these things. He had directed some of these groundbreaking films and it's like, he does hook and you look at all the reviews, like, look, look, look them up. They're mean. They're, no, they're, they're mean, mean. And they're pretty much saying like, ah, oh, Spielberg, Spielberg's not, Spielberg's going to kind of go the way of the dinosaur. <laughs> and guess what's his next Which, movie? Jurassic Park. The Color Purple. The, or, or, no, you're right. Sorry, Jurassic Park. sorry. The Jurassic Park. No, you're it's right. Jurassic, you're right. Park. Jurassic Park. He makes Jurassic Park. And you know what he makes after Boom. Jurassic Park? Oh, we know. Schindler's, Schindler's List. List. And, yep. and now people are like, oh, well, uh, Spielberg. And then, you know, in, in the 90s, he makes Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Um, Holy shit. I, when you think about yeah. that. Uh, but then like when he made the lost world, when he made, um, when he made, uh, 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 the Tom Cruise movies, he, he did minority report. Like, mm-hmm. when, Oh, minority. When, when he wasn't, hell. when he wasn't when, like right after saving private Ryan, people were like, Oh, uh, no Spielberg, you know, it's, he's not that, you know, he, people were shitting on him. And that's kind of mm. what happened with Nolan after inception, you know, Everybody was like, no, no one can, no one can stay this high. And yeah, mm-hmm. like I, I, and that's true. That's true. No one can. No one can. Very few very, can. Very, like the only one, like think of the great, whoever you consider the greatest mm-hmm. filmmaker of all time. Like they mm-hmm. all had duds. Akira Kurosawa had duds. Uh, famously, uh, Orson Welles, everything after Citizen Kane was duds. Although, it, and in fact, it took years for people to realize that some of the stuff he made afterward was brilliant. Yeah, Hitchcock. That's famously, 
famously oh, had yeah. a ton of duds. Years of duds. Yeah. Years. The only one that people agree or would say like, oh, he never had a dud was Kubrick. And even that is debatable. But even, but yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Even with Kubrick, that is highly debatable because everyone talk, everyone has at least one movie where they're not that into of yeah, Kubrick. It's, it's, sometimes it's different, sometimes but it's, it's, it's like a, there's, th- there's three different ones people think of, I think. That people select as his bad one. Yeah, they either say it's Lolita or or Spartacus, or Spartacus, or, uh, or Eyes Wide uh, Shut. Eyes Wide Shut. Those are the three that someone says those are his bad ones. And guess what? If any, if you found a single director that made those three movies, and those were the only three movies they made in their lifetime, they would be still called one of the best directors of their generation. Exactly. Exactly. That's what's insane. And, and the thing is. The thing is, uh, with with the Dark Knight Rises, like I'll be honest, with the Dark Knight Rises, uh, there was never that moment where I was like, "Oh my God, Nolan's." When I saw it, I was like, "Oh my God, this is Nolan." Like, this is this is this is good good stuff. Um, I I think um, most people would probably point to those who actually like again, and I, I like the Dark Knight Rises. I rewatch it. And I'm, uh, this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will point to. Uh, the either you know the first Bane Batman fight, or they'll point to, uh, they'll point to like the the chase sequence when when Batman comes back onto the scene. Um, I've I've heard people say that the high point of that movie is, believe it or not, is the is the the third third act fight where like all the criminals and all the cops just go at each other. Um. Well, that's also I've heard people say that that whole sequence with the cops that's the that's plot wise the weakest point of the movie, yeah. and I can no see no that. yeah for me for me like having have having rewatched it recently, I would say the high point of that film is when he gets out of the pit. That to me is like yeah. that to me was like. But then that's almost a little bit ruined where you see he's walking where he's where the outside of the pit is. And it takes you a second to be like, I don't quite buy that part, exactly. but it's still no, great. No, you're right. You're right. Now, with Interstellar, I think everyone agrees the no time for caution sequence is was Nolan at the height of his not only Nolan at the height of his powers, but the perfect like symbiotic relationship between Nolan and Hans Zimmer. Like, mm-hmm. I still get goosebumps when you know I watch that scene and he says, "This is," or what he says, um, and it says, "This is impossible." And he goes like, "No, this is necessary." And then the, the sequence starts and you're just watching it and you realize there's barely any CGI in this. And you're literally seeing a a moving sh- spaceship trying to stop a, a falling space station. And the, it's pretty it, it is incredible. It is it is one of the most incredible things you'll ever see. But it, this is also the movie with uh, that line of just love. And it, it no, doesn't I, again, get right. No, I I. Like, I'm not arguing, like, oh, yeah. Interstellar is, like, one of the best movies ever made. I'm just saying that Nolan will always have those moments in his films where you're like, holy shit, this is... Oh, yeah, This is, this yes. is like... It, it doesn't even have to be, like, an action... Even Tenet has the final battle, which you're like, holy exactly, shit. Exactly, exactly. Like, it's not even... It doesn't even have to be, like, an action scene. It could be a moment. It could be a talk. Like, like what's the most famous one everyone points to? The Joker interrogation scene in The Dark Knight. Um, oh, it's it's every Edge Lord's favorite scene. Yeah, but it's it's actually like no, I mean that, in a good, but it's actually good. No, yeah. That's what I mean. What I'm saying is that it's it was so powerful and impactful that it's that. Yeah, point. with Inception, it's like like 
with Inception, it's like when they actually do the actual Inception or when they, they're just like going through the different levels. Like there's so many things. Or the entire hallway oh, sequence. Oh, yeah. Really the hall, that, that's, that, that's it for me is the hallway sequence. And uh, in, um, in Batman Begins, it's, it's literally like uh, – it's literally like when, when, when Batman figures out that, like what Batman is – with the, with or Al, how about the moment in the Prestige where the you see all the light bulbs glowing in the snow? I mean, come oh, on. Okay, that's one of that moment. That one's really that good, but something. my my absolute favorite one. Because folks, I don't know if I've mentioned this. Like, listen, for both me and C, and C, sorry that I'm sharing this. We don't consider Nolan our favorite filmmaker. For C, I believe it's no. Guillermo del Toro. Correct. It's he Guillermo del Toro has made my favorite. Oh, okay, movie. yeah. Who, who would you say yeah. is your favorite filmmaker? That's hard for me to decide. Um, it's more like I more. Uh, okay, I go back and forth honestly between Ridley Scott and Kubrick. I think I go okay. back and forth okay. between them, but that's just me. And for me, like my favorite filmmaker is. Uh, it's it's a uh, in general it's it's uh it's david cronenberg because he's he ha he's has a wavelength that i just really really enjoy um and uh, i also really really like like you know just in general uh, uh miyazaki miyazaki mm -hmm. and uh you know so miyazaki cronenberg uh <laughs> i actually it's actually kind of funny i have really really started liking like uh, 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 Denis Villeneuve, like again, because I've been rewatching his stuff, and, I, oh, yeah. and I'm like, oh, this guy's a genius. This guy, this guy don't miss either. He he doesn't miss. Like like, well, we saw his one miss, but he denounces it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was that called? Maelstrom. Ma Maelstrom. Was that? Yeah, but then you see, yeah, he denounces. Then you it. see the film he did after that, Polytech, and you're like, oh, like when I saw Polytech, I was like, oh, dude, you you're not gonna make anything better than this. And then I find out, mm -hmm. like, Incendies. Incendies is playing at, like, this this little tiny theater, like, like five or ten miles away from university. Where you were. And I, I go and I'm watching him, like, okay, he's never going to do anything better than this. And then I watch Prisoners, like, two or three years later. And you're like, okay, he's never going to do anything better than that. Yeah. And then we saw, uh, uh, what was it? Arrival? Um, but Arrival. he made two movies between that. He made no, he I made um, Enemy. Enemy, which I was like, that, when I saw Enemy, I was like, okay, that's going to be his career. He's just going to make weird movies like that. Mm -hmm. And then and then I saw uh, Sicario, mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh right, fucking Sicario. I saw Sicario, Jesus. and I'm like, well, shit. Like I was like, shit. Yes. He made something as good as Prisoners. What? Yeah. And then then I saw Arrival, and I'm like. How how is he doing this? This is not fair. Yeah. But anyway, point point yeah. being, uh, you also walked out of walked out of Arrival saying that bitch. <laughs> but that's yeah, that, I'm that, that's a joke, folks. That's yeah, a joke. But uh, so but my favorite film of all time, the film that made me mm -hmm. love, like my favorite film of all time was also the very first time I ever had a a legitimate remote drop movie. So remote mm -hmm. drop movie, folks is a i've always heard it termed like like stop the channel movie don't change the channel movie uh remote drop is something i've heard from uh from nfl commentator rich eisen 
where mm-hmm. you're you're basically channel surfing. You a movie pops up in one of the channels, and you just stop what you're doing just to watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. um, Quentin Tarantino has talked about this. Uh, a lot of a lot of people have talked about this phenomenon, and mm-hmm. that never really happened to me until the until like the fall. It, it was it was 2006. Uh, mm-hmm. My family had Dish Network, and mm-hmm. and um, you know Dish Network would do this thing where like like you would have a weekend of free HBO, and oh, that's so cool. and uh, well Directv did this too. I think all the cable companies did this. That if you weren't signed up for the mm-hmm. premiums, you would get like a free weekend uh, just to try it out. They'll give you a, yeah, taste. Give you a taste. And I happened to skim through it and it stopped on HBO, and the Prestige was playing. And I even remember the scene that start that it started on. It was the scene of Hugh Jackman's uh, uh, wife's funeral. Like liter- mm. literally starts when he's asking, like, what knot did you use? And he mm-hmm. says, yeah, I don't know. He says, you don't know? You don't know? I'm like, wait, what happened? Let me, let me keep watching. And let's just say that I did not move. Oh. I did not move. And, yeah. and when that film ended... I was so blown away by it. I I didn't stop thinking about it, talking about it for months. I was so obsessed. Mm-hmm. I uh, I demanded my parents because we 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 didn't have one at the time. But I demanded them. We need to sign up for like a movie rental card or something. And something. And, anything. and when we did, the first thing I did is that I rented the Prestige, and no. I rewatched it. Like my my father would would even tell you like, oh, he was obsessed with that movie and. To, to this day, it's my favorite film of all time. I watch it at least once a month. Um, oh, once a month? Yeah, dude. I love it that much. Damn. And my damn. S- Even I don't watch Pan's Labyrinth once a month. God damn. the thing that like always gets me is the, uh, is the reveal. Like, I, mm. I'll just start watching it. Just the reveal of the situation for both characters borden and algier like like when you're like oh this is what what has happened in their lives i just watch it and i'm just fascinated by it and and that's the thing with nolan was that he gave me that high that that like just love of it that when when it hits like so two years later i see the dark knight and that movie just (laughs) that movie just throws you with those moments where you're like like with the hit me scene with the Joker, the Joker interrogation scene, uh, the 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 boat scene, or no, even the line, the simple line, uh, "Why do you want to kill me? Kill you? Oh no, I don't want to kill you. You complete me." That line summarizes Batman and Joker's relationship eternally. And, 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 the, th- and the thing is, see, I'm sure, like, like you know. You know, Iron Man came out that summer. Iron Man came out the May of 2008. Every, every, God, what a summer. Every, well, yeah, to the, the summer of 2008 was considered one of the greatest summer blockbusters of, of the, the new, cent, of the of new millennium. Uh, yeah. But, you know, Iron Man came out. Everyone went in expecting, like, oh, a superhero movie. And they went out going, like, that was funny. This Robert Downey Jr. guy is really interesting. And, oh, yeah. Nick Fury. Holy shit. Uh it was it was yeah. really the first time people had seen like, oh, another comic book leading character in uh, other characters' comic book movie. Two thousand eight began the true comic book era. Yes, you had Spider Man and other things, but they they were like they were big, but there were other types of things. Two thousand eight began the true like 
era of domination. Exactly. I guess you could say. And and the the thing was was that that is only now just starting to fade. So, which but is but crazy. but the thing was was that like yeah, Sp- uh, Iron Man had Iron Man had hype, some hype, but man, I remember when the hype started for the Dark Knight. Oh yeah, why so serious? Oh, the, and, oh and and the thing was, everyone was like so ready that when. I don't know how it was for you, but I not but I'm, I have a pretty good idea what it was for you. But for me, I walked out of that screening packed house, by the way, packed house. I walked out of that screening going like, oh, the game has changed. Like, like, you know, like, I don't know how you felt when I walked out of the dark night. I the first thing that went through my mind was like, the game has changed. I need to see that again. My thing. So here's here's the story about this. I went to see this in a very special theater in my hometown. To put it lightly, it's a old retro theater that's been modern. It's been given a modern outfit. It's kind of really beloved. I think a lot of major cities have at least one of these theaters. Not all, but many do. Um, New York has many, apparently still. But the town I grew up in had this one theater. And I remember I was actually going to go on this trip with my church at the time and I was going to be gone for like two, oh, like 10 or 12 days and I was dying to see this movie dying to like I couldn't I needed to go and the only and I were, we were I was leaving on a flight I had to be at the airport by 6 a.m. and my dad managed to convince my mom listen because there weren't going to be any electronics on this trip we can't tell him he can't we can't not take him to this movie and then he can't do it for, you know, 12 or 13 14 days or whatever. Like he's not even going to be focused on the trip. It's always going to be thinking about. So we went to this theater 10:30 packed, completely packed. See the movie, I'm leveled, I'm floored, I can't believe it. And there's two things that I remember the most. One I would go to the, my dad to see a lot of movies in theaters because often the movies I wanted to see, you had to have an adult bring you or I couldn't drive, various things. And he often just would agree. He would often just say that was a pretty good movie, but I could tell for a lot of them, he wasn't, he didn't like it that much. Or he thought it was just okay. It was more for me to see a certain movie. But for that, I knew that he liked it, which... He's not, because I knew he wasn't into superhero movies that much. I then knew, oh, this, like you said, the game has changed. Plus, I then basically, right after that movie, like after the summer of that movie, I, w- I started high school. So that movie actually represents a lot of change in my life in that yeah. moment. And yeah, I remember walking out being like, oh my God, this was everything. This was absolutely incredible, and I could not believe it. Um, and it is still the... And for the sake of argument, folks, we're putting Batman in the superhero category for movies. Comic books, that's a different argument, I think. But for the sake of argument in movies, we're putting Batman in a superhero. In the superhero category, The Dark Knight is still the best superhero movie ever made yeah which is crazy yeah and it, 2008 it's the best one ever made and and the thing is is that you know it it just it it was one of those things where like 
like really and truly you thought, wow, this guy made the greatest movie, the greatest superhero movie ever made. He's never going to top that. He never. And then he did. And then he did. No, no. That's yeah. Like crazy. I took the, so I, I even remember the very first time I heard the word inception in relation to the movie. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I had a habit of in, in school reading like, so, you know, in school libraries, there's like a section where they have like all the current magazines. Yes. And I had a weird habit of always reading the time magazine. And, hey, and cool. I was reading Time Magazine and there was the section on culture and there was like, it was a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio saying like, uh, mm. first image of Christopher Nolan's newest film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, Ellen Page. And mm. it just said Inception and it's about like the the maze of the mind. And I just saw that mm. and this was in 2009 and it, it just said summer yeah. of 2010. And I can tell you that that day I just go up to my my best friends at the t- my best friends who who are still my best friends. I go up to them and I'm like, "Hey, yeah, so uh, next summer we're gonna watch this." And my friends just look at me and it's like, "Why? The Dark Knight guy did this." <laughs> I go like, "The Dark Knight guy did this," and they're like, "Oh, okay," because they, <laughs> they just no, because they had all it. seen they The Dark ex- Knight at that point. Yeah. And and yeah, the like, opening yeah. night. Well, there wasn't opening night. It was opening day. So basically, you know, you remember when when theaters used to do like midnight, like midnight screening, midnight screening. But then the real opening day was the next one. I yeah. I was too much of a lazy fuck to like stay up till midnight to catch a movie. Up and I started doing it in college. But uh, yeah, that's when you do it. That's yeah, when you but, do it. Folks, so basically, it was like it was fun. like the first six p.m. showing, the day Inception got released. Me and my three best friends, we go see it. And at the end of the film, at the end of the film, all we were talking about, like one of us was just talking about the set pieces. Another one was talking about how the levels worked and how time worked. So it was it was like it was what that thing that it was like this was so complicated. But Nolan had such faith in the audience figuring it out that Mm -hmm. we never were like, oh, I'm so confused. We were like. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, that's such an ingenious way to do that idea. And and mm-hmm. then I thought to myself, like, I like this guy made something as good as the Dark Knight. Holy mm-hmm. shit. How many like I, I remember that day I told one of my friends, I was like, I think this guy's like the I think this guy's like the new Spielberg. And then Little Wind recreated a scene of it in his music video, Six Foot, Seven uh-huh. Foot, and we knew he had made it. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> do you remember that no, bit? I do. They dropped Little Wayne in the tub, and then it just goes, Six Foot, Seven Foot, Eight Foot, yeah. And you're like, all and, right. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, uh, by, by the time 2012 rolled around with Dark Knight Rises, everyone was like, if he makes something even close to Inception or The Dark Knight, it's, it's mm-hmm. game over. Uh, yeah. You know, but... And we've already kind of talked about them, but, but again, the point, yeah. the point is, is that like Nolan is, is the guy that like, when he makes something, everyone in the world pays attention because he seems to, to tap into something that we all are like fascinated by. It, it, it's, it's, it's insane to say like, like mm-hmm. there, there's no other filmmaker like that. He, he really has supplanted Spielberg because listen, with all due respect, Spielberg is a master and, and like, I've liked some of the most and will be and is I've liked some of the recent be. things he's done, but he he hasn't made anything up to his highest peak. And for me, at least with Oppenheimer, I think I think uh, 
He brought it, but Nolan brought it back. No, Nolan's no. I I don't know where Nolan's peak is. I really don't. I, I I think I think we're, like. It's. I think so. Uh, for the record, I think the the inception inception is still technically the quote unquote peak, but, and when I should say this, let me rephrase that. It's the inception is the peak for the most amount of people. I oh yeah, say. yeah. That that's the best way. To that's what it, it yeah. is. Inception is the peak for the most amount of people. That that he'll never get that level again. That um, not even level. Sorry, he'll never get that amount again as far as people and cultural significance and change. But he, as far as his abilities, he's not. Yeah, done. He's yeah. Not done. Like, like I really enjoy, like. For instance, with with Tarantino, Tarantino, Tarantino after. Like hell, after uh, 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 Pulp Fiction, when he made like, and I like Jackie Brown, um, but people, but it's it's got problems. People, people have it's problems not... with Jackie Brown. People have problems with uh, with uh, what was the one he did? Uh, uh, the Death Proof movie he did. Um, but he did, he did, he did half. Didn't he, he do Kill? He did Kill Bill one after Jackie Brown. Yeah, he right? did Kill Bill one and two, which which people yeah. said brought which brought, which him, brought back. him back. But then he did. Uh, let's see, it was. Death Proof. One was Death Proof. Brought him down because Planet Terror was Robert Rodriguez's. Which one was, which one was uh, uh, his Death Proof? No, Death Proof was the name of like the two movies together. Oh, no, 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 no. You're right. You're right. You're right. Death Proof. Yeah, because Grindhouse is the yeah. two movies. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're and, good. And uh, but then like obviously everyone says his crowning. Like people will argue with Tarantino that his crowning jewel is either his crown jewel is either uh, Pulp Fiction. Or Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard yeah. that, and and we know he thinks Inglorious Bastards is his best movie. No, he he, he, thinks he generally that. thinks that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his best movie. Oh damn! Um, one quick thing, I do want to add: uh, a high school alumni of mine was one of the lead, was one of the main girls in Death Proof. Just fun oh, fact. Oh, that's really. She's also the girl. In, she's also the girl. She's also in Rent. She was one of the girls in that, and she also played a reoccurring role on um, on uh, Cold Case. And she came in after Death Proof came out, and she talked to the our high, a lot of our high school class, and like did a discussion on what Tarantino was like and everything about that. And she was she was that was very nice of her to come back and talk about mm-hmm. that. But one thing she said that really struck with me was that working with Tarantino, and I've realized. Working, it's working. This applies to other directors of this level. No, and I'm saying, obviously, Christopher Nolan is of that level, but that there is so much more when you're working with a director of that caliber, whether it's Tarantino or Nolan or Spielberg or anybody else, you are joining entirely on the basis of trust. Yeah. Because now some would say, well, you're actually just relying on a name. No, no, no. Well, okay, fine. But not exactly. You're also relying completely on them to make something amazing because she acknowledged in our class that when she read the script to Death Proof, she was a little hesitant to do it because of the subject matter. She was like, I don't know about... Like, she didn't... She never... She always said yes, to be clear. She always wanted to do this. But the, the subject matter gave her pause for a moment. But then she realized... 
Tarantino didn't let Jackie Brown down because no matter what people say about the movie Jackie Brown, everyone agrees she's fantastic in it. Mm -hmm. Everyone agrees that. So then she realized, okay, Tarantino is not out to get me. He's out to make something great. So obviously I need to do this. And I guarantee you with many of the actors involved in Oppenheimer, you can argue yes. Nolan says you want to do something, you're going to just say yes because it's Nolan. But to be then be told it's actually going to be a movie about the man who invented the atomic bomb, you are completely trusting that director. And you know what? Thank God every single cast member in this movie did because if they didn't, we would see it in this. Just just kind of and that's kind of something I want to say about Oppenheimer before, you know, we watch the trailer and give our review. Mm-hmm. Like the cast. So folks, ju- just to really drive cast. home the level of pull uh 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 Nolan has. I had never seen this. so there's this phenomenon where there are directors who make a movie that is so critically acclaimed, so beloved that actors from like every A-lister is like, I am willing to work for free just to work with you. And, and, yep. and here's the thing though. Here's the thing you would, that happened noticeably with Terrence um, Malick, Terrence Malick, a lot. No, every actor will work. So, with him so for Terrence, free. Terrence Malick made days of heaven. And um, what was the other movie he made days of heaven and uh, uh, the, Bad the Badlands. Badlands. Those two movies. Oh, that was it. Th- those that two movies it. inspired a generation of filmmakers and actors that when he came back to do the, the Thin Red Line, every actor in Hollywood, I'm not joking, every actor, well, everyone, everyone. everyone who was working in Hollywood in the 90s basically said, I will work for you, Terrence Malick, for free. And yeah. that's kind of literally. And that's why people thought then that's why there was initial surprise when between Saving Private Ryan and Thin Red Line, which was the victor. Let's be clear. Saving Private Ryan is the better movie. But peep, that was a shock at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And and the thing is, is that uh, uh, since then, Terrence Malick has had that pull like you. You see all the movies he's done and you're like, why are all these A-listers like just kind of doing walk on roles like. Like you don't yeah. see that even with like people like Scorsese, Spielberg, Coppola, yeah. Tarantino. You, you, like, do, do you know how many A-list actors are in Song to Song, which is considered one of his worst movies? It's like it's all A-list exactly. in that entire yeah. thing. It's crazy. Exactly. It, it was one of those things where it's like you you would think like oh if, if there's a Scorsese movie everyone's gonna jump in to 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 work on it but people turn them down people turn Steven Spielberg down people turn down uh, yeah. Denis Villeneuve people turn out people turn down Scorsese which is hard hard to believe but yeah they do. Uh, people turn down uh, uh, Ridley Scott David yep. Fincher um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of who else is like like. At that level, James Cameron, um, Matt Damon famously turn- turned down James Cameron to be the lead in Avatar. Yes. Well, also, and we won't get too much into that, but there's other reasons why Cameron has been turned down in the past. But that's oh, yeah, a different, that's a different story. story. But but the yeah. the point I'm saying is is that like all these directors who are who have clout, like people turn down Peter Jackson, people turn down like like uh who who's like like people turned down Damien Chazelle who was like the new kid on the block uh people turned yeah. down Jordan Peele who's like the new new kid on the block 
Uh, people turn down. Uh, you know what? I can't think of it anymore. But yes, there are people who, or you know what? In the comedy world, people turn down Judd oh, yeah, Apatow. I, I, I think you should turn down Judd. People turn down Adam McKay. No, but, but, Adam McKay. And he's like, he got clout now, like a lot of clout. Yeah. Um, but point is, that's true. Point is, is that all these guys, all these directors who are like, they have, they, they move and shake things in Hollywood. Like it was really only Terrence Malick who'd be like, "Hey, I'm making a movie," and every actor would be like, "Please, please." All the actors like, "Yes, Dad." Exactly. <laughs> it's literally like. But that. now Nolan with this film, folks, that was it, folks, yeah. everyone. There are so many A-listers, and then everyone else is solidly B-list. Like, if yeah. it's not someone who like got nominated for Best Actor, it's someone mm-hmm. who's been in movies where you go like, "I know that guy. That guy's great in this." Like, and even look for the record, it's like when like one of your smallest roles is held by Josh Peck. That's just kind of funny. When, like, when, when an Academy Award winning actor like has two scenes or three scenes oh, you're and right. only one of them does he speak. Mm. You're like, that's pull. That's that's that cool. is Because he's not even a, like a... Good for you, Remy Malik. <laughs> yeah, good, good for, for you, you. Remy Malik. So, I saw him and I'm like, wait, you're going to be used for something important. I just knew that. No, so, like, and then where everyone else is like, character... Like, so there's this running joke between me and C. Or not running joke, but there's this running thing with me that, like... I, I always go like, oh, I love that character actor. I love that character actor that he's like man, you really like character actors. And then, like, most of my... This, most of my favorite ones were on here. Movie. Like there's 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 one. well Nolan's really good at that even in Tenet Nolan has picked some incredible yeah. character actors yeah. but he's just good at that but that's so funny because it's like I I remember sitting there because we didn't see this movie together and I'm watching this and I'm like I'm looking at all these faces and I'm like I'm gonna have a hoot. yeah dear lord yeah <laughs> uh, like like there so I I just uh so anyway. That just shows you the level uh, of pull. Uh, the cast list is so long. I'm just gonna name like the the top the roles. top roles. We have Killian Murphy, who has worked with Nolan since uh, Batman Begins. Batman Begins. Uh, Killian yeah. Murphy is is again one of those actors I always go like, oh, I love Killian Murphy. He's great in everything. Like mm-hmm. you guys know him from Twenty Eight Days Later. Most of you probably Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders is the people. thing that kind of made him like fully a list. Cause he was like, he was like yeah. a B list actor and he liked it that way. But then he started doing Peaky yeah. blinders. Like, like most zoomers know him from Peaky blinders. Most millennials mm-hmm. know him from scarecrow and most, uh, gen Xers know him from 28 days later. Um, yeah. Uh, all great. All great. Yeah. All great. Uh, uh, so and this is his first leading role in a Nolan production. So, and you can tell in interviews, he's a little uncomfortable with the fame he's getting. He like, he's the new level of fame. He's like, I don't know about yeah, this. He's like, uh, he's, he still loves being in the movie, obviously. But what I'm saying, it's like, like there's this interview he did with BBC one where he just goes, you know, I just want people to know I have an incredibly boring life and I love to talk about it. And I'm like, that's an amazing thing to say. No, what's amazing. What's amazing is that it's, it's so obvious that when the, when SAG Afresh went on strike, he was like, Oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. It's <laughs> over. He, he goes like, oh, he was like, uh, I'm going to go strike guys. Bye. And he's probably just home yeah. right now reading a book. Um, yeah. We have Emily Blunt who worked with Killian Murphy in a quiet place. Part two. She plays uh, yes. Oppenheimer's wife, Kitty. Uh, we have Matt. In fact, there's rumors that Killian Murphy recommended her for Oppenheimer's wife. We don't know this mm-hmm. for sure, but there's rumors because they worked very well together in A Quiet Place. Too. Yeah. Uh, we have Robert Downey Jr. playing 
the historical nemesis of J. Robert Oppenheimer, Louis Strauss. He was basically like a bureaucrat who, who you know, he was a government bureaucrat. I had to do some research on him, and it is his own story is fascinating. It, it is quite too. fascinating. The the thing that I, he could be a movie too. Yeah, genuinely. The, I mean, that. so what's interesting about him is that most people are like, oh, he must have been like some politicians. Like, no, no, he wasn't. He basically was like the. He was like the the prototypical Washington bureaucrat. He would get, uh, he was the prototypical government bureaucrat where he would just get appointed to stuff because he knew he donated to the right campaign and he just amassed mm-hmm. power that way. The other mm-hmm. like famous example of that was the the guy who like ran, who ran like the the interstate system in New York State. Um, That's right. What's his face? Yep. I know, I know. You're talking about literally Looney Tunes as Jen jokes about him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what was that? Because uh, he was responsible for the quote-unquote figure eight highway stuff. Yeah, he was responsible for that. He was also responsible for like, for like the racial segregation in New York City. Yeah. Yes, he was. Yes. Let's yeah. be honest. He was. These aren't good people. Let's be clear. Like, folks. These uh, like Alec people. Baldwin played him in a movie. I think I forget. I forget the name of the guy. But anyway, mm, but but yeah. this Louis Strauss was like another example of that. The bureaucrat who had a lot of power was like mm-hmm. the man behind the man. And he famously was he was the one who orchestrated the the denial of security clearance for uh or the or to or to revoke the security clearance of Oppenheimer. He's very famous for that. Mm-hmm. And most of American Prometheus kind of or the, the the last third of American Prometheus kind of deals with that. And we have Matt mm-hmm. Damon playing General Leslie Groves. So mm-hmm. uh, the only other Hollywood movie. Uh, who at one point was considered one of the highest ranking officers in the in the ar- in the American army who had served almost no t- time fighting exactly for a minute it's no longer the case but because of the things he was involved in which the movie Oppenheimer references he kept rising through the ranks in that way so the only other like hollywood movie involving the trinity test involving oppenheimer was the 89 film Fat Man and Little Boy, which was directed mm-hmm. by Roland Joff, who most folks know as the director of The Killing Fields. Uh, mm-hmm. Oppenheimer was played by actor Dwight Schultz, and General Groves was played by Paul Newman. So Matt Damon mm-hmm. walking into Paul Newman's shoes, thats uh, that's got to be something. Um, yeah. And uh, everyone else is like almost everyone else in Hollywood, like straight up, yep. straight up. And a bunch of character actors I really like a bunch of A-listers who, oh Florence Pugh, oh Holy Florence shit. Pugh's yeah. in this too, but she's not like part of the main cast. But she she's but she is built that no, way. No, yeah, she is. She's built, been built she is that built way. that way. Um, but like, basically, the point I'm trying to make is that you have like your four main cast, and then you have like the supporting cast, and then you have like the supporting of the supporting cast, and it's all like A and B-listers, <laughs> and it's it's yeah. insane, like. There was a, like, uh, here, I'm thinking, like, I'm here watching, like, a character who was, like, playing a lawyer, and then I go, like, holy shit, that's Macon Blair. I love Macon Blair. <laughs> or I go, like, holy shit, that's, that's uh, Tony Goldwyn. I love Tony Goldwyn. <laughs> or, like, it's a, a thousand people. Or when you figured out who the actor that played Einstein was, you found yeah, that. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I it. love Tom Condy. Oh, or, like, I go, like, oh, I love Dane DeHaan. Oh, I love Josh Peck. Oh, David Dash that small chin. I love David that small chin. Or Matthew Modine. I love Matthew Modine. Or even um the guy, he's okay, there's a great TV actor in there. Um 
He's in there for a minute. It's just um, he's the voice of Stan's kid. In oh the yeah, or not Scott the Grimes. Um, I go yeah, Scott Grimes. I'm like I'm like I love oh, Scott Grimes. Or you go like yeah. oh James Darcy. I love James Darcy. He was great in um in uh in uh in um uh that 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 Cloud Atlas. Or, 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 or I go like, or I go like, you know, he, he's not, he doesn't even have a speaking role, but Michael and Garano, do you know who Michael and Garano is? I don't. Sky High. Oh, you're right. Yep. I, I knew I recognized Benny that Benny Safdie's okay, yeah. in this too. Yeah, well, yes, and I recognize Benny Safdie because, listen, Benny, I love you, and you're you've actually really upped your acting game in the last couple of years. You seem to be going that route pretty strong, but you've got a very wonderfully distinctive face, and that's a good thing in the movie. It world. is an amazing thing in the movie world. Uh, or then you know Olivia Thirlby's in it. She pops in for a bit. Uh, sure, why not? She's there. She's there. Uh, she's just there. Yeah. Uh, oh, who's the guy? Who's the guy that um, he has the mustache and he takes. Okay, spoiler for two seconds. He has the mustache and he takes care of Oppenheimer's kid for a bit. Who was that? That was. I recognized him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. Give me a second. That was. Jefferson Hall and okay what's he done I know him well he was he was in uh he was in Halloween like the 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 2018 Halloween uh okay he oh he was in Taboo I don't know I don't know if you saw Taboo but he was in Taboo uh oh he's also in House of the Dragon that's probably okay, where so you yeah. recognized him <laughs> okay that's probably where I recognized Alex him, yeah. Wolf is in this oh that's By the way, my, my favorite, like, oh, I love that guy moment. Well, okay. I, 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 I don't want to. Well, yeah, it was, it was making Blair. But then my second favorite mm-hmm. one was like when Josh Hartnett popped up. I'm like, Nolan got his wish. He got Josh Hartnett in his movie. Folks. You know what I want to point what? out? So. So think of like, so there are a few scenes here that are pretty crowded with non-extras or it's pretty crowded with character actors that you're describing. And I just picture this moment when they're like in between takes and any one of them looks at all the other character actors and guys, and he just goes, guys, I'm so happy for you. Like on that set <laughs> to be in that movie. He's like, I'm so proud of it. And, and all of them go, oh, us too, us too. Like they're just all proud of each Jason other. Jason Clark is in this. We're like, movie. okay, when Jason Clark popped in, I was like, oh, this is going to be this movie where I'm like, this is going to be a Terrence Malick situation, isn't it? This is de- yeah. definitely going. And then when when Eldon Ehrenreich popped up, he kind of he's kind of more in the, in the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, sphere of the story. Oh, and who's... Go on. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, who's the okay? Again, minor spoiler. When Oppenheimer's being interviewed, you know about like they have the binder out and they're talking to their, you know what I'm yeah. talking about when he's being interviewed. Um, obviously there are people we recognized in there. Um, that old guy in the background who seemed to be Oppenheimer's on Oppenheimer's side, or at least I felt like that's what was implied. He's done, he's been in movies forever too. Um, yeah. But I couldn't play John him. Goins. But he's, he was in, that's he was what? in the original Star Trek. Uh, he was in Charmed. Uh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. He's in. Why do I, why did I know him from Charmed? But okay, I don't know. But I saw him like, you've been in a billion things. Yeah. He's so. basically like a character actor who pops up in a lot of network TV. 
Yeah. And again, like like for God's sakes, like he's been popping up since since like the seventies. So no, yeah, it's just like you've been around and everything. But anyways. anyway, so how about should we watch? Yeah, the trailer let's watch the trailer and point? then start giving our review. Because dear lord. <laughs> Imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Theory will take you only so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice. Just one thing I want to add. C and I, we didn't see it together, but we de- did see it in the in the best format possible, as demanded by the director Christopher Nolan. We saw it in real IMAX, folks. seventy millimeter IMAX, mm-hmm. and the real the stuff. real stuff. And I gotta say, before I let C kind of give his thoughts, if you mm-hmm. are to see the film, and you are near an original IMAX screen. Like with, we define near as an hour away. By the yeah. way, it's that much worth it. It really is. It really is. I I I gotta say it. it every time and every time I see a Nolan film in seventy millimeter IMAX, where where it's actual like film projection, it just kind of mm-hmm. takes me back to like, ah, uh, there was a, there was a physicality to like a, a film where you're like it didn't mm-hmm. look perfect, but it looked damn close. And you know sometimes I miss that. Yeah. But anyway, see, go ahead. Oh. That was beautiful. Thank you, Al. Um, okay. So I feel almost wrong for just starting to break down this movie, but it's what we have to do. So let's talk about it. Um, so we both, I saw this uh, in a 70 millimeter genuine IMAX. Um, and. What can I say other than, okay, I'll start off with this. Nolan's later movies, for me, good or like whether I've loved them in their entirety or have had issues with them, 
one powerful thing about Nolan's movies, and no director gets this consistently, okay? Because prior, prior to prior, incep- anything Inception and before, it was just me loving it and obsessing over it. Great. But afterwards, whether I had issues with certain of his, some of his movies or still loved them all the same, the difference I experienced was that they really sat with me for a long time. Like, I really had to think about them. Tenet was a good example of this. I reached a different conclusion with Tenet than I did for Oppenheimer, or that I'm currently at with Oppenheimer. But that's neither here nor there. The raw power of a director to do that every time, really, every time, applause all around, really. So, this movie is... One of the few examples, uh, so this is the one of the few examples of a film that is true stream of consciousness, but delightfully, meticulously, and powerfully organized in all the right ways. The only other director who just does stream of consciousness for all of his movies, really, is Terrence Malick at the end of the day. And Terrence Malick has moments where he's done it in, in, in a way that can't be conceived. Days of Heaven, I think, is his best movie, but we're not getting into that. The point being, this was such a perfect stream of consciousness that delivered the flashbacks, if you will, or the memories in the ways in which you actually have memories as a person. Okay? That is incredible. Incredible. That is remarkable. And then you realize it's two streams of consciousness. And you know you're witnessing something that might never be replicated in the same way. Truly might never be done again. You know, you know what? Yeah. I'm watching this film and... As, as it's playing out before me, I totally agree with what you're saying about stream of consciousness. The way I was putting it was like, oh, it's it's one giant montage. And it's it's the mo- no, it's right. the most simplest film concept you're taught in film school. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. like you make a film just something. It's a good technique. The Russians gave yeah. us like this. Well, what's the name of the guy who did uh, the battleship? Potemkin. Potemkin. Oh, we watched a movie about yeah. um, Eisenstein. What was it? Uh, Eisenstein. Eisenstein. Yes, he's the master. He's considered the not the master. He is the father of montage. So, folks, this is this movie obviously has a plot, but what Nolan? Yes, we're not saying it does. But what Nolan does is that he takes roughly okay he takes basically in fact he takes references from battleship protect when i swear to oh God. he does he does he totally little, does yeah. <laughs> or as he would say he ripped off battleship potemkin yeah um so he basically takes uh roughly uh four events oppenheimer's uh time as a postgrad student in europe yeah. oppenheimer's time as the director of los alamos uh oppenheimer's uh in oppenheimer's like uh 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 not trial but like hearing about the mm-hmm. the revoking of his security clearance 
And then mm-hmm. Louis Strauss's uh, uh, confirmation as a commerce secretary. He mm-hmm. takes he takes these four events and uses uses the Louis Strauss confirmation hearings as sort of a frame framing of of the of the uh, of the hearings involving the revoking of Oppenheimer's clearance. And then mm-hmm. that is used as a frame for Oppenheimer's uh, time. Which, for the record, folks, that means he no longer will have control over the trajectory of atomic the atomic pa- atomic power. Project. Atomic energy is what they call it, but you know, atomic yeah, energy. But yeah. anything involving he nuclear. no longer has his hand on this. He will basically him losing security clearance will basically mean that he no longer has his hand on the steering exactly. wheel at all. Or or be or be part of any meetings or be part of any discussion. Or be aware of what's being made done exactly. next. Exactly. So yeah. his his hearing him him like giving a statement then frames his time as a postgrad student and his time at Los Alamos. And then Nolan basically montages it all together. Um there is no there is no like narrative, there's no plot driven narrative in the sense of like this happened, therefore this happened but this happened. No, it's usually like we get, we get like a, we get like a uh, mise-en-scene of a, of a, of a moment that's happening in Oppenheimer's life or in Louis Strauss's life. Uh, Have you heard the theory that that whole movie is happening in his head much faster in the last shot? Yeah. That's an interesting interesting theory. So, so what I'm saying, what I'm saying by this is that, Nolan has always been this guy who makes these very detailed plots. The some would some some of his detractors would say convoluted, but I think you and I mm-hmm. would say they're very they're complex, sophisticated. Uh, they they can be a bit of a labyrinth. Well, mm-hmm. he kind of puts it all back. It's like no, it's just just simple montage. We're we're seeing a scene. Mm-hmm. We see the scene play out. Then we see another scene that may not be directly related to it. May not be chronologically after it. But there is a thematic through line. Oppenheimer is not a plot-driven film. It is a character study, and I have not seen Nolan done a character study in his. I think he wanted to prove people wrong about one of his bi- the biggest critiques about him, genuinely, yeah. which is, and I've always actually I have I think the, which is basically the critique is that he doesn't have the most well doesn't have the best characters, and in all honesty, even in his best cases, that has been the strongest. I would say that's been the most accurate critique i should yeah, say like like that's the one you can cite yeah, the most like, like and what, genuinely... what, what do people always say about heath ledger's joker was that nolan basically gave him full control of the character so everything we like about oh. the joker was heath ledger nothing was involved mm-hmm. nolan uh, jonathan nolan or david goyer and everyone argues that matthew mcconaughey's character in uh in interstellar could have hypothetically been a plank of wood like it was that yeah he was that basic yeah so to speak yeah but here, like this is a this is not only a character study of Oppenheimer. It's a character study of Louis Strauss. It's a character mm-hmm. study of everyone around Oppenheimer. Everyone who either influenced him or he inf- or he influenced them, and and their ideas of this new atomic age. And quite frankly, I, like listen, we we were basically just talking about how like a bunch of A and B listers round out the entire cast. It almost mm-hmm. feels like it was necessary because, see, I don't know if you agree or not. Maybe you would think I'm being hyperbolic. 
every supporting character of note had mm-hmm. at least one scene where they were in full control of the movie and they knocked it out of the park. Like, I agree that they knocked it out of the park. I think for me, control of the scene is a touch strong because at the end of the day, the movie is Oppenheimer's movie with Strauss invading the system. Yeah. But like, like for instance, Josh Peck. Josh Peck really only has like, he has a couple scenes, but then he has a, a scene that we see in the trailer. In that mm-hmm. scene, he, his character just, just, just like gives off such a vibe of anxiety and fear. It's so mm-hmm. overwhelming that it enhances the scene where you're like, I kind of don't want it to count down to zero now. I'm too scared. Well, because I will admit his performance, his moment there did make me think of kind of like, okay, I used to work backstage uh, for some theaters. And there's always that moment when you, if you're in control of the lights, it can be a little nerve wracking because your bu- the buttons you push start and stop certain things from happening. Now, this is nowhere near the same as an atomic <laughs> bomb. Let me let me be clear. But I went to that core memory a bit when watching him do that, of him hovering over the button, because I did that. I was, like, hovering over the button, and I'm like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Okay. So, but, like, but not, not just Josh Peck. Uh, Alton Ehrenreich, who most of you folks know as not Han Solo in the Solo movie, right? Yes, exactly. He, he again, most of his, all of his scenes are with uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character. He has a moment that he is, that is his moment that is so well executed. I was like, wow, that like, no offense, most filmmakers, Mm -hmm. that character is just kind of in the background. Nolan brings this guy to the foreground to make a point. Jason Clark, Jason Clark has a moment where he's going toe to toe with Emily Blunt. No, there's a moment where he's he's describing uh, uh, indiscretion that because uh, Oppenheimer Oppenheimer was a womanizer, he's describing mm-hmm. an indis- he's forcing Oppenheimer to admit about an indiscretion he had about an affair he had, mm-hmm. and Jason Clark and Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh's in the scene too, but yes. Jason Clark adds to just the horror feel that Emily Blunt's character feels in that moment, that you're like. Oh my God, uh, Macon Blair, Macon Blair. Like you would think, okay, I'm just here because I want to, I'm here to work for like a couple days. Cause I just want to say, knock off the, the bucket list that I worked with uh, Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Every one of these actors has a moment where they, they have control of a scene and they knock it out of the park. It's, it's, it is mm-hmm. I like, I, I just saw it. And I can't comprehend it. I cannot. No, I agree. I also have to point out that I love that Josh Harnett's character. I had to look up his name because I, I just recognized him, but I had to look up his yeah. name. I like how in every, because you this brings to your point, every scene he's in, his, I feel like Nolan walked up to him and said, you think you're the leader, but you're not. Because he, he walks in with this protagonist syndrome the entire time. Yeah. Like the way he acts yeah. and it works very well. It's very much necessary, yeah. but it was just very funny. To there see. was um, like Nolan. So there's, there's an actor on here that a lot of zoomers and younger millennials will know. Devin Bostic. He played a uh, Roderick in the diary of wimpy kid movies. And Nolan, no, like some zoomer who's on TikTok and interviewed Nolan. Like, yes, Nolan has a bunch of TikTok interviews. It's insane, but 
Well, he knows what the future's at. Yeah, he doesn't use technology, but he was like, I need to make sure I'm on... T- I, I need to make sure I, I talk to TikTok people. It, it, it's neither here nor there. That's a whole discussion C and I will have behind closed doors. Oh, because... Yeah, that's neither here nor but, there. Uh, but anyway, uh, and he pointed out, like oh, this, this actor who's in this movie I've known, and, and Nolan goes like, yeah, Roderick rules. Uh, and he goes like, yeah, he has his moment. Like, a lot of these car- a lot of the casts have their moments. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I thought nothing of it. I was like, yeah, he just says this guy has his moment. And then I watched the movie, and I'm like, yeah, everyone has their moment. Uh, Emily Blunt does some really good career work here. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's her best work, but I'm, I am going to say that she does some really good stuff. This, this role is like, for Killian Murphy playing J. Robert Oppenheimer, I, I got to say, it's like, like, you know how, like, you cast an actor, you hear an actor's playing a role, and you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that... Well, also, how 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 was Robert Downey Jr. able to vanish okay, into the role okay, okay. entirely? Robert That's Downey Jr. Shit. Robert Downey Jr. Holy I'm, shit. I'm going I'm going I'm going to go on a rant. I got to go on a rant, see. I just got yeah, to. I got go to. I got to. Do it. Cuz I just watched I'll this. Let you do it. Okay, folks. Yeah. Since it's freaky. Since 2008, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> oh, I know the rant you're going to go on. Oh my Robert god. Robert Downey Jr. was <laughs> cast as Iron Man. Turned out, like, hey, uh, Tony Stark is kind of like my personality, except more type A. He's he's said this in many interviews. So it, it was pretty easy for him to get into the role, right? Like, remember, Robert Downey Jr. got his start in, um, you know, he was in a he was in a Gen Gen X movie called. Um, it was written by the guy who wrote American Psycho. Totally forgot what it was called. Can't recall it. Mm. Uh, but then he got his like a list moment when he was cast as Charlie Chaplin in Chaplin in 2000 in 1992. Right. Uh, but then got nominated for, got an, nominated Oscar for an Oscar that. and everything got into drugs. And well, he was always on drugs, but his drug, his, but really got into, he, drugs. Got, he really got into <laughs> drugs in the nineties became a bit of a running joke. Uh, you know, seemed like he was getting better in the late nineties, early two thousands, got caught with a bunch of blow, got kicked off a sitcom, got thrown into jail. Uh, Literally gets out. The first thing he does is Gothica meets his wife, gets married, and then he's offered the opportunity to audition to do a screen test for Tony Stark. John Favreau goes like, oh, my God, you're literally Tony Stark. You're just, you know, you just have your you have your addiction under control now. And folks, let's be real here. He's kind of just been playing that role the Tony Stark and Sherlock Holmes role of like this, this drug addicted genius guy who's sarcastic Oh, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is in there. Somewhere. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is in there somewhere too. Uh, yeah, but but he kind of ha- he kind of is on cruise control. The one time he tries to act is in 2014's The Judge. And here's the thing about The Judge. <laughs> I can understand Robert Downey Jr. reading the script and going like, "Hey, I really want to flex my acting muscles again. I've been playing." Uh, I've been playing uh, 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 Tony Stark and and uh, and uh, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes for six years for, for six years now for six years now. Mm-hmm. I I need I need something different. He does the judge here. Here's where he went wrong. He hired the director. Oh, Tropic Thunder too. Sorry, sorry. Well, tro- Tropic Thunder, really and truly, Tropic Thunder was the last time he was doing something else, right? Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. enough. Tropic Thunder, but. He, he hires the director of Wedding Crashers to direct the judge. 
And we mm-hmm. all know how that movie turned out. The only thing I can tell you about that movie is that it has the, the guy who plays um, the lead in Succession, uh, Jeremy Strong, mm-hmm. plays someone with autism and it's cringy as fuck, but you can't look away. Anyway. And it gives Robert Duvall an Oscar nomination. Yeah, but the movie's not great. And we were condemned to Robert Downey Jr. just being Tony Stark for another four, five, six years. Right. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even get we didn't even get Sherlock Holmes anymore no, at that point. We just got Tony Stark and then Tony Stark as Dr. Doolittle. And it was horrible. It, it sucked. It was yeah. bad. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. After after I heard that he had no projects lined up after Dr. Doolittle, that he actually dropped out of doing like the, the HBO reboot of, of who's that lawyer? Um, Matt, oh, Matt Lock? Uh, no. Matt, Matt Lock, Lock. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, or Malik, whatever. He dropped. I, think, he, I, I know what he dropped about, out of yeah. doing that, and he just produced it. I was like, well, Robert Downey Jr. doesn't know how to act anymore. He hasn't acted really, truly, since the Judge in Tropic Thunder, and he hasn't really given a great, like a, like a performance that just wowed you since Tropic Thunder and Chaplin. And like, okay, he can't act anymore. It happens. And then I watch this. I hear that Christopher Nolan <laughs> cast him in Oppenheimer, and then I watch yeah. this movie. And what I proceeded to experience was, oh, oh, that's right. Uh, Richard Attenborough said that Robert Downey Jr. was one of the greatest actors of his generation. John Favreau said, John Favreau said, oh, Robert Downey Jr., if it wasn't for his drug addiction, would probably be one of the most celebrated American actors in history. And what I proceeded Mm -hmm. to see in his performance as Louis Strauss was, quite frankly, a revelation and I, I say that because mm-hmm. folks you've heard me kind of not be the biggest MCU fan in the world recently mm-hmm. and I would say that one of the bright spots was Tony Stark but that like as the films and I, I made this complaint to see many times one of my main complaints mm-hmm. of that starting with Iron Man 3 it literally was Robert Downey Jr. would go to Atlanta shoot for a week do the heads up display stuff and then leave. He wasn't really acting mm-hmm. anymore. He was just showing up yeah. to be in some scenes, do the heads up display and leave. That was mm-hmm. it. And get paid millions upon millions of dollars with it. And I, I rem- a crazy ton of money. And I remember yeah. to see, I would, I would kind of complain about this. Like, yeah, he's not even really acting. At least Chris, at least Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth and, uh, and uh, uh, um, uh, Scarlett Johansson, they're trying mm-hmm. to get something out of this. It, Robert Downey Jr. is just kind of showing up and leaving. But with yeah. this, I, I gotta say, Robert Downey Jr. If, if he plays his cards right, he's, he's he's about to get a third act. He's about to get of a, his he's career. He's about to get a third act where people go like, oh, that's not Tony Stark, that's American thespian Robert Downey Jr. His performance, his performance stood out to me out of everything else because. Killian Murphy, I know he's going to knock it out of the park. Emily Blunt, I know she's going to knock it out of the park. Matt Damon, I know he's going to knock it out of the park. The fact that Robert Downey Jr. was, quite frankly, probably giving... Better than all of them. Better than all of them. I'm sorry. He has a moment in the third act, right before the film ends, where I just said to myself, you know, a lesser filmmaker would have said, oh, this is kind of your awards-nominated scene, so just play it loud, play it out there, and you know, political maneuvering, you'll get an Oscar nomination. You know, that happens. Mm -hmm. He plays this scene so real 
like genuinely mm-hmm. of a man who feels slighted and paranoid about his slight <laughs> that I, I, for, I, oh, I didn't see Robert Downey Jr. See, you know who I saw? Who? I saw Louis Strauss. That's who I saw. I, I didn't even remember. I know that's what's crazy. And the makeup is minimal. It's not that much. Yeah. They adjusted his, I think they, they adjusted his hairline a bit and they did something with his cheeks. I think minorly, not a lot. And they did that little bit, and that's all you needed. And his incredible performance. For me, the scene that got me so much, there's two moments. One is when they're at that dinner table in the hotel, and they're talking about what Russia's doing. That entire sequence, I'm like, I am not, I'm watching a, a different person here. Because it's the way he is engaging with the new evidence that's going on, the way he's talking to Oppenheimer, just everything about it is so human because it's the one moment where they're all unified at the table and they're, and they're not unified for a good reason. They're unified because they're scared now. Something that they didn't plan for has now happened. And they all, it's like, it's like the band's getting back together, but it's because they have to deal with a very significant, scary situation. Yeah. That's what it is. And it's so fucking good. The other great moment, of course, is his one-on-one moment with Oppenheimer at the school. That's wonderful. Because when you look, when you think back to that scene, you see the jealousy soothing out of him. But you see a man that's good at hiding the jealousy, but you see an actor that's good enough to sh- have it come out in little in in the smallest of ways. Like that is talent right the, there. That is really hard to do. You know the 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 thing with Robert Downey Jr. in this is the fact that Oppen. You would think this movie because again, I what did what did I say? It's about Oppenheimer's rise, fall, and stuff. American Prometheus. You would think mm-hmm. oh, there's a bunch of scenes where where Louis Strauss and Oppenheimer are always butting heads. No, they only have like maybe like four scenes together, mm-hmm. but the way each actor, Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. Performs as their roles. You throughout the entire movie, you just feel that animosity between the two of them. They there's you know, a lesser movie, but they're too, they're too polite yeah, to deal with it. I don't, a lesser movie would have had like, Oppenheimer a scene where they're arguing with yeah where 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 the cards are on the table that never happens here because that didn't happen in real life instead what we get is Oppenheimer on the receiving end of a verbal beatdown from his wife where she's like you need to stand up to the guy who's obviously fucking you and Mm -hmm. Louis Strauss just kind of goes on a rant over how much he felt disrespected by Oppenheimer it's glorious because again what what what's Nolan using? He's using that a the the one of the first techniques of film, whereas like put two moving images together, you're gonna get an emotional reaction, and that simple concept, that very simple concept of how he put a moving image, where he put a moving image, and what what music was playing during that moving image, allowed him to allowed him to get the proper emotional reaction from his audience. It's the man's a genius. I'm sorry. Like I, I, I don't know if I've ever called Nolan a genius, but he's a genius. No, he, <laughs> he is. is. I acknowledge that. I'll, I'll even say I acknowledge that somewhat begrudgingly because I am. Let me be clear. I am neither on the Nolan fanboy train, and I am not on the Nolan detractor train. I'm on neither. I, I was on the Nolan fanboy train for a while, but then 
certain movies he made made me somewhat get off that train. But I would never dare get on the hating yeah. Nolan train. Like, like, listen, I don't want to come off as a Nolan fanboy. Like, I, I will tell you, like, yeah, I like Tenet. No, it's not a movie that would warrant you watching it over and over again for pleasure. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Gee, the way you just said that, like Oppenheimer would say something. Oh but, um, yeah, I wouldn't warrant but, it doing it for pleasure. But, uh, <laughs> but no, like, like I, I call Nolan a genius because his yeah. mastery of filmmaking is just so apparent. Yeah, maybe, maybe the story doesn't work all well for an audience member, but you cannot deny the craft and the – Technology. And here's the thing about Nolan. Look at his sets. His sets are very simple is not the right word. They're very old school where it's like, yeah, it's a camera, maybe one or two lights. And then it's just the set design. Mm -hmm. And you're like, fuck, he makes these grand. He makes these grand epics with. Also, Hoyt, sorry, Hoyt Van Hoyten is going to get an Oscar. I, I mean, he should because they only shot this with only IMAX cameras. And he was That's the only insane. one who was willing to to do over the shoulder with those cameras. You see him too. You can tell. First of all, if I'm Nolan, I'm now like, you have, I'm paying for your chiropractor for life. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I would feel bad otherwise. I'm like, it's, you a, it's hilarious you a that, you know, so, so again, because of the SAG-AFTRA strike, none of the actors are doing mm -hmm. press anymore. So Nolan's basically yeah. been stuck doing all the press and every, every yeah. interview he does, he goes like, yeah, Hoyt Van Hoytema, man, he's a, he's a trooper for carrying that camera around on his shoulder. I'm, yeah. <laughs> so, so like he understands, he, he understands that that, that was a sacrifice having to be made for art. But, um, yeah. you know, the, the, like, you know, what else shocked me? See, and I, I need, I need to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. Not just the sound design, the sound mixing. Mm. Nolan decided, uh, Nolan. <laughs> what did he decide to do? He decided to finally not be an asshole and let us hear the movie. <laughs> Thank you. See, this is and, and let me be clear. So the the characters and the sound are the reason why I had to step away from the fanboy train of Nolan, because there are two movies specifically that where I was literally like, this is this is offensive with what you're doing. But thank God he not he figured out a way to make the sound incredibly fantastic, unique, and beautiful, but also like not eardrum shattering as well. Let me be clear, obviously there are moments, and we all know the <laughs> moment, even if you haven't seen the movie, you know the moment where the sound goes wild. Fine, great, good, enjoy it. But, thank, I was worried we weren't gonna be able to hear what they were saying, and thank God we were. Because you pull that crap in any other situation, especially for something like this, for such a dialogue-heavy movie, if if I had as much trouble hearing this movie as I did Tenet, I would have been so much uh, so upset. What? But wasn't the case. You know the the thing I got to say: a lot of these actors they have naturally soft-spoken voices. Killian Murphy has a soft-spoken voice. Emily Blunt. I would even say like a lot of a lot of the character actors they have naturally soft voices. Dane DeHaan famously has a soft voice. And it was when these guys kept popping up I'd go like, "Can I will I be able to hear this guy?" And then you can hear them clearly. 
What Nolan does really well here with the sound mix is that the dialogue is front and center, and then it's immediately followed that by very appropriate music. Uh, so uh, this is this is Nolan's second movie being scored by uh, the uh, what's his face? He he was like the composer for like the Community TV show, and oh, and then he yeah. then he got famous doing uh doing which I saw when I saw that name I'm like Lu- oh Louis shit Gorenson. that's not Hans Zimmer yeah Louis Gorenson yes. he started off doing Community and then he did uh then he did uh Get Out and then Black Panther Mandalorian. Like, but this is the guy who started off doing uh, Community. Oh, and then he did Atlanta. That's right. Then, that's then, then right. He did yep, Atlanta. That's. But yeah. um. But uh. But yeah. So Go- Ludwig Göransson, uh, his score, like you would think because of the trailer that oh this is gonna be super bombastic. It's not. It's actually like, it's actually I think, Nolan's most melody driven score since. Since probably the prestige, honestly, mm. uh, it's 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 string heavy, which you don't really hear with Nolan that much anymore. But because the last string heavy score he did was was all the Joker sections with the Dark Knight. But that was always like really in your face, you know, like, ah, ah, ah. yeah, the score is amazing. And again, this is a this is kind of like a stream of consciousness montage character study thing. So Nolan always has music against the back on the backdrop there's no there's this movie i don't think this movie has like a a just a dialogue scene with no music whatsoever but the music is never overpowering it goes into the background where it's supposed to it it enhances the film there was a there was someone on twitter who gave a critique saying like i didn't like that the movie that the music never stopped and i'm like no i actually really like that the music never stopped that there was always something undergirding the dialogue because with a dialogue heavy movie, just hearing people talk, it, it can get a little boring, but the music and was, it might, this might've. Yeah. And the, cause I was, I was ready to say that this movie was too long. When I sat down, I was like, this movie's going to be too long. And the music helped. With you know, that. our, our, our mutual friend, Chris, we were talking about the movie and I said, he had, he had seen it before me. And I asked him, oh, well. I asked him, is this the three hour movie like girl with a dragon tattoo where you don't feel it whatsoever. And you're shocked when it ends. You're like, wait, that was three hours. Or is this like, uh, the, the, the Russian three hour movies where you're like the Russian three. Is this the Andre Tarkovsky yeah, three where hours you're like, where it feels like seven, where it feels like seven you're and like, you want to die. And he goes like, no, you feel the three hours, but you don't mind it because you're so invested. That's what I, was, I would have responded with. Bo- it's both in a lot yeah, of ways. Because the movie, the movie runs the risk where you feel like it naturally ends after the bomb gets sent to Japan. But we still yeah. have to deal with, you know, the, the, the fallout of, of his, his hearing with revoking his security clearance with Oppenheimer and the Senate confirmation hearings with Strauss. So mm-hmm. we still have a good third of the movie to go through. But that's when Nolan starts doing his revelations like over what really happened. Like also, if you know history, you know what happened, like in terms of who, who was really behind Oppenheimer getting like blacklisted. But, but like for those who had no idea, they were like, what? Oh my, like there was this couple next to me who just went, Oh my God. But I, Mm -hmm. I, I thought he was a good guy. And like, I was like, I thought this was common knowledge, but anyway, it was. It's not. It's, it's not. not. I didn't no, know. Yeah, I it's didn't not. Know. But it's. It's. You're invested in it. But it's. 
it's easily and it's not common knowledge, but you can easily look it up. And it's like, yeah, basically, yeah, that's what. Yeah, happened. but it, you're you're invested in the story where you're like, oh, I'm not like some of the best like verbal back and forths happen in the in the last third. That keeps you into it. That keeps you into the movie and the movie. I never felt like I wanted to get out of my seat and, and, you know, or I wanted the movie to be like, hurry it up. You know how like with really long movies, you get that like, okay guys, hurry it up. Like I, I felt that yeah. with like a lot of long MCU movies where I'm like, okay guys, hurry it up. Mm-hmm. I never felt that with this because I was always like, Oh, what's, what's, what's this guy going to say? Oh, what's going to happen here? Oh. And you know, again, there's this meta thing where like, Every actor gets like a spotlight moment. I was like, oh, is this guy going to? Oh, he is going to get a spotlight moment. So I do have a theory, though, I want to put out. Sure. So specifically speaking to all of the. So you and guys, this isn't a spoiler. This this is actually you can't really spoil this thematically. It's it's way too easy to look up the history of it. We all just like so it's hard to spoil this in a in a thematic way. But it is you can spoil this in a visual way. But one way that isn't a spoiler is we know that there are certain parts that are black and white and in color. I am not going to say what what defines those because it's really cool when you figure it out. Regardless, I'll put it this way. In all the moments with Oppenheimer, in the in the three Oppenheimer stories, okay? In sorry, wait. Let me think. There's only Okay. There's only three in, there's only three stories involving Oppenheimer, and the fourth one is yeah. just Louis Strauss's Senate confirmation. It's Strauss's, yes. So here's the thing, though. There are at least three scenes. So you've got you've got the Apollo, t- not the Apollo, you've got the Trinity test that happens, and it's very intense and it's it's truly revelatory. And then you have the scene that I think was possibly one of my favorite scenes more than the Trinity test scene, which is the scene in the auditorium where he's talking oh. to the people. That oh. scene, which you know what I'm talking oh. about. So, but uh, hold on. I'm getting there. So there's that scene. And then there's the, the penultimate, con- no, there is the conclusion to the scene where he's being interrogated and interviewed at this, uh, uh, by central intelligence, basically. And in all of, okay. So you have, the bomb is getting ready and things are getting more intense and you have the scene afterwards and it's chaos and it's, you know, he's hearing different sounds. And then you have the most intense moment in the, um, in the auditorium scene where in, in all those scenes, there is an emotional explosion except for the Trinity test where there is a literal explosion. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. You saw that. My theory is that originally, when they were shooting this, Nolan wanted to intercut all three in some kind of mm-hmm. way. Because the, the commonality of them and the pace of all of them is too incredibly specific and perfectly timed out. But what I think happened, and I actually applaud Nolan for this, is when he put it all together... I think he realized that this would be quite literally tonally and technically and emotionally and everythingly too much. Like actually people wouldn't be able to take it and they'd ha- they would back away and the impact would be lost. Mm-hmm. 
So I think he then realized, okay, I've got three fantastic scenes here. I'm just going to space them out a bit mm-hmm. and let them breathe. Yeah. But I think by the way, because the reason why of those scenes, the weakest of that explosion moment is the one with um, where he's in the room being interrogated. It's still great. But it's the one where it's like, okay, why are all the lights going white? Why is that shaking? It still works. You understand it. But that part would have made more sense if it was tied in with everything else yeah, going on. Yeah, because that's something no one's done before where he's like... Tying in multiple scenes. Yeah, not just that, but he, he plays with time. He plays with time and yeah. like... Like he did that in Dunkirk, right? He yeah. did that in Dunkirk. Oh, he really did that in Dunkirk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I am convinced... I am convinced that those scenes were meant to tie in as one thing at mm-hmm. once, but that he pro- and he probably did it at first. But if you did that, you would easily lose the impact of the other two scenes way too much. Yeah, I just way too yeah, much. I I have a theory that I, I have I have a theory that um, the 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 Trinity test was going to originally play a lot later. Like, like it was going to be the last thing and that yeah. Nolan decided against it because it made more sense to end with like how it actually ends. Cause the yeah. way it actually ends is like that just so sucks. Yeah. <laughs> not in the bad, not saying it sucks, not saying so, the movie, not saying that sucked, but saying like the so revelation, I, uh, the emotional folks, revelation. I saw the movie this, this day that we're recording and I have no yeah. shame of saying this. When the Trinity sequence played out, there's a there's a moment, there's a moment where uh, where all you see is the light. That's all you see. Mm-hmm. And then you hear a line that, if you know anything about Oppenheimer, you know you know that line had to be said somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it happens. And mm-hmm. then the sound design goes apeshit. And yep. everything about that scene was like so perfect. So like, like, like I immediately understood what Nolan was trying to say. I immediately mm-hmm. understood. I actually teared up because that, that level of craftsmanship, that level of just mm-hmm. mastery, you just, you just don't see anymore in a big Hollywood movie. You really don't. And just hearing, just seeing how that played out, immediately knowing what he was trying to communicate, you know, and it, it's nothing flashy where it's like in big bold letters like this is this. It was just he's you hear this line of dialogue that you know was going to be in the movie. It had to be in the movie, mm-hmm. and you just see the consequence of everything that was done in Los Alamos. It's just it it was just it was just pure as a filmmaker, like like as a visual artist. That's mm-hmm. the peak you want to reach in terms of your craft. Mm-hmm. And then in the same movie, in the same freaking movie, he has a scene where Tom, Con- Tom Conti as, uh, as Einstein and uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Killian Murphy as Robert Oppenheimer. They're having a discussion. It's the end of the movie. And it is such a masterclass in acting, in directing mm-hmm. actors. Where like as a director, that's kind of the peak you want to reach. Where you're like, where where you're having this dialogue, but it, this dialogue is about one thing, but really the scene is about something else, and it just ends with, with Killian Murphy doing, I don't know what it is about British filmmakers that 
that they seem to know how to get actors to act with their eyes. Because yeah. one time I showed see a movie called The Long Good Friday yeah. with Bob Hoskins. <laughs> yes. And I said, yes. I said, this has the most famous last last close-up shot in all of cinema. And see goes yeah. like uh, or in all of British cinema. In all of British cinema. And see goes like, okay, I guess. And we watch the film and then the end happens and it ends. And I'm like, so? And he goes like I had no idea that for a split second, Bob Hoskins could be one of the greatest actors of his generation. <laughs> yep, I did say that. I was like, oh, okay. Who would have thought he did and, it and Nolan, for a second? Nolan doesn't reach that height, but Nolan reaches no. a height where you're like, it's literally like you look at Killian Murphy's eyes. You hear the last line of dialogue. And like there was the woman next to me was crying. She was crying because it's, it's a, it's, it's it's a it's not it's 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 bleak. It's bleak because it's some it's a, it's something that we've lived with all our lives that we've kind of like been like ah, whatever. But then when it, when you really think about it, when you really really think about it, you're yeah. like, which you shouldn't, folks. For too yeah, long. don't don't think about it too long. It's really depressing. But when you really yeah. think about, it, you're like, oh, oh, well, shit. Yeah, and and this this that just again shows the mastery that Nolan has on his craft. I I think, I think like you know you have your you have your directors who, everyone always says that guy knows how to make a composition. That's Ridley Scott. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's James Cameron. That's Steven Spielberg, and then you have mm-hmm. those directors maybe not as well known because they don't know how, they don't make iconic sh- as many iconic shots, but they're they always get great performances out of their actors. You have mm-hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson. You have uh, Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick. He's the one uh, the best. Scorsese. Uh, yep. You have um, uh, uh, what's his face, uh, Quentin Tarantino, who knows how yes, to direct Q- actors. He, yes, he does. His visual style is all stolen, but he knows how to direct actors. That's true. Right? And and he knows and he knows how to write. Oh, he knows how to write. Yeah, he knows how to write. Uh, you have uh, Mike Lee, who's considered the greatest director, actors director. In all of cinema, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, that everyone's like every British. Oh, you have um, uh, who did uh, Master and Commander? Peter Ware. Uh, Peter Ware, who again is considered one of the best actors directors as well. And and Nolan's here. Maybe he doesn't reach the heights at, like as a visualist like Ridley Scott because Ridley Scott literally trained as a painter. Um, yes. But he's up there where he's like, he can he can go full full twelve rounds with each of both camps, and that's mm-hmm. what you want as a filmmaker, where mm-hmm. where not only do you get great performances, but you just create these amazing images that stay with you for a long long time, you know. Mm-hmm. I no, I agree. Yeah, and that that's kind of the thing about Nolan and other filmmakers like Denis Villeneuve. I think Denis Villeneuve is heading there as well. We'll see. He's getting there. We'll see what happens with Dune Part Two. If he lands Dune Part Two, that's gonna be a that's gonna be a triumph. If he lands Dune Part exactly. Two, exactly. That's gonna be a. I'm very because right now that's the biggest competitor to this movie. Yeah. All and that's like, who exactly? And that's in a year when we have a new Martin Scorsese movie coming out and a recently announced Exorcist sequel. Uh, so, hey, we'll see. Yeah. Um. Folks, listen, 
take also take advantage of well, we'll we'll give our ratings i just need to say this take advantage that nolan because everyone's striking had to do all the promo himself and yeah. there's like a bunch of videos where he's like being interviewed and he oh he's funny he's funny he's not just funny he's he also gives a lot of great insight into the, like the cinema that influenced him and yeah. like i'm gonna go to the my city's uh like uh, my city's like uh, a video rental place. And I just got a list of like British movies from the late seventies, early eighties. And I'm like, please send me that list. Oh yeah. Well, I send you the video where he pretty much says the list. Okay. I'll look it up. Yeah. Then. Okay. Look it up and be like, Oh, so this is how you turn into a Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Nolan. You know, we're getting there that we, I mean, we're already here where there's a filmmaker in Hollywood who is explicitly influenced by Nolan. I, he he, mm. he or she is probably not making anything big right now, but they will. I mean, they have to. We've already had movies that have been directly influenced by Tarantino, so Nolan's coming. Nolan's coming. Nolan's like like let's see, uh, a filmmaker in their early in their late teens when The Dark Knight comes out mm. would be in would be like in their late twenties, early thirties now. Oh, you're right. So it'd be just the right timing. Well, we'll see about that. Are you ready for your review? Or your rating, you mean? Right, that's what I did. Yeah, what we're like, we just been talking, guys. By the way, I will give one critique. God forbid this movie had not have a single critique. And I'll give it because I've had a couple days for it. This movie, and it's not even a critique, but it is something to be aware of. This movie is emotionally exhausting. Oh yeah. So it, that's not a bad thing, but it is a fact of this movie. It is emotionally exhausting. So just know that. Otherwise, that's hardly a critique, but it is a fact that it could be, that for some people might not be something they want. That's all Here's a critique I'll give, and I, I'm fine giving this critique. Just know <laughs> when we say that this is not a plot-driven movie, this is a character-driven movie, what I mean is, is that if you don't even have a, like this movie does a good job in giving you a basic idea of the Oppenheimer timeline. Like, okay, he, he was a professor at Berkeley, did this, did that, and this happened. But for the minute details where you're like, okay, well, who's this? Who's that? What's this? What's that? That the movie has no qualms about not really caring about making sure you're well aware. Like, like you're going to be hearing names where you're like, okay, who was that again? Who, who's this? Who's that? Like it, mm -hmm. and it happens. It, it just happens because you know, Nolan, most biopics, when what they would do is that they're going to basically turn a true story into a narrative that has a reasonable number of characters, right? Yes. They'll, they, and they do that by combining uh, two real life people into one character. Uh, like, for instance, in, in the 89 Fat Man and Little Boy movie, uh, General, General Groves, they combined... He's the Sam or Paul Newman's character. Like he's a combination of the character that Matt Damon plays. Like obviously they share the same name, but he also is a combination of Dane DeHaan's character. Uh, Interesting. Second Lieutenant. Uh, what was, what was his name? Second Lieutenant. Uh, I don't know. He, he, he was like a second, second Lieutenant. That's interesting. Yeah. Though. So, okay. so, but Nolan is like, no, I'll just cast somebody for that. So yeah. you're going to hear names, you're going to see faces and the movie again, cause the movie's not about them. 
It's about Oppenheimer's interactions with them. You'll mm. you'll be like, wait, who was that again? Like, and Nolan tries to get people who have who don't look alike so that you don't get too confused. But there were yeah. there were members of the team where I was like, oh, this guy's played by Alex Wolf. No, he's played by the. He's played by the 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 guy who freaks out in uh, in uh, in uh, the Big Short. Uh, you yeah. Know, the so there are a few moments like that. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. So that 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 is a critique I will give. In not in the sense that that dilutes the quality of the film for me, but that I know that for a lot of audience members, where you're like, okay, I have to who is this guy again? That 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 that, that throws a lot of people out of the movie. I kept hearing that like. Like where someone go, went like, I need, I think I need a Wikipedia article because I could not remember who was who outside of like the main four. Yeah. And like that, which I also think he so he picked such distinctive faces so you could tell everybody apart because you would start to lose. the. That's one of the thing you might, the lesser names you might start to lose a bit, but not by much. Yeah. Yeah. Not by much. But uh, like, like for stuff like that, you know, I, I do think I do. I do want our audience to know just because again, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, okay, I know what I'm getting into. Just know that really focus on the main four, Oppenheimer, Kitty, uh, Strauss and Groves focus on those main Mm -hmm. four and you'll be good. So yeah, you'll be fine. Yeah. So see, what's your rating? This is an atomic fucks that demands to not only be seen in theaters, but see it in IMAX. Now I I will add, there are some theories that, People, there are so many people waiting to see this in IMAX because there's a backlog of, because t- all the IMAX tickets for this thing are so, are constantly sold out. But they are actually there is a theory that that is why some of the. It, let me be clear, this movie is doing great in the box offices, but there's another movie that came out the exact same weekend that's doing a lot better, and we'll be talking about that movie in the next episode. But for this movie, there are a combination of theories why this one was doing. Sig- significantly less than the other movie. One, the other movie is based on an IP that's vastly more popular. Two, so many people are waiting to see this in IMAX that while you are getting theaters that are plenty crowded, it is detracting a little bit, apparently. But I am on that train, though. See this in theaters and see this in any form of IMAX. And if you can drive to a true IMAX, 70 millimeter IMAX, see it there, folks. You will not regret it. I promise. Yeah, the atomic fuck. This to me is a. I'll, I'll, I'll come out and say it. this is a. This is a J. Robert Oppen fucks for me. <laughs> <laughs> J. Robert Oppen fucks. That's amazing. Yeah, listen, I I gotta say I would give this a fucks just because it turned me into a Robert Downey Jr. can actually act believer. Yeah, like that's true. Like he can actually. And I still am the train that he is the best performance in this whole movie. Yeah, he really is. I said it. Uh, he's gonna get nominated, and I think he should win. I really do. He yep, I I do too. He should fucking win. I, and yeah. I think listen, Nolan. <sighs> I don't want Nolan to end up like his idol Ridley Scott in the sense of like he never wins a Best Director Oscar. That would be so wrong. Yeah, that would be so wrong. Um, but the thing is, is that I, is his idol Ridley Scott? Has he said that? Uh, yes, his idol. I thought it was another director. No, it's, 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 it made he heat. has three idols: Kubrick, mm-hmm. Scott, and Man. 
Okay, that's those are his three idols. And it's interesting. He says Mm -hmm. Michael Mann speaks to his American heritage, and Ridley Scott speaks to his British heritage. And he and he talked about how like every time he talks with Ridley Scott, he always gets really nervous because Ridley Scott apparently has a very gruff attitude, and he curses like. Oh, Ridley Ridley Scott is the dude you see at a pub that tells you to fuck off like that's what Ridley Scott's yeah, attitude so is. Yeah, so apparently apparently he has a really gruff attitude and he curses like a sailor. Yeah. A- and that Nolan every time he talks to him he doesn't know if like he's being like an annoying little shit to Ridley. <laughs> well, Ridley you can tell as genius of a director as Ridley is and as fantastic as he is, Ridley's annoyed by a lot of people most of the <laughs> yeah. time. Like we we know this. No, cuz cuz someone someone asked him like so Man or Scott and he goes like like oh Every time I see Michael talking to him is such is such a delight. Every time I talk to Sir Ridley, like I've always worried I, Sir Ridley, I, I'm yeah. pissing him off. <laughs> yeah. So, so, <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, like again, to me, to me, like Oppenheimer shows that Nolan. To me, Nolan has reached another level in his directing in the sense of like. I really, really do feel this is his best directing in terms of performances in aggregate. Like his best, the best performance he's ever directed was obviously the Joker. And to me, I would say Alfred Borden in the prestige to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But in Mm -hmm. aggregate, there's just so many great performances in here. That, but Nolan acknowledges with the Joker that that was much of Heath Ledger. Yeah. 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 Uh, And to me, it's like, it's to me, it's like, Maybe if the cards are right, he'll finally get his win. Because everyone, mm-hmm. I know everyone says, well, Oppenheimer is the most stereotypical movie for Nolan to get a win with. And to me, it's yeah. like, yes, but this is also the movie where he just got so many great performances out of every level of casting. Like, like, come on. Um, yeah. But I also can see that, like, Nolan still has something to give. And, and you know how these people are, like, like, it always seems like they give the best director Oscar to whoever has the most hype going into September or coming out of September. And, yeah. and, and it helps if you have an illustrious career, which at this point, Nolan now has. Yeah. So it, like Nolan's career can either go where he's like, where he gets recognized properly for like his best directed thing like Spielberg did mm-hmm. or it takes a while. And then only after he has so many films under his belt, did they give him one like they did with Scorsese? At- Which really, cause yeah, that everyone agrees with Scorsese as great as, um, the departed What was the movie as great as the departed was. Listen, he made a few other movies that probably changed the course of cinema history that y'all ignored. For the exactly. Record. No, so, no, that, your, like that, the that they ignored because they were like, Oh, uh, these movies because they thought it was trash. They no, not even trash. trash. They were like, "Oh, this movie's kind of, kind of violent, or kind of has like very bad characters." And it's like, "Fuck you." We don't like that. But um, but listen, but yeah, uh, if he gets nominated, great. If he wins, I'll be so happy. But but yeah. But again, going going back, like, like, I, I just love seeing a director who, up until now, the biggest critique was that people would say like. He knows how to make he knows how to make a composition, doesn't know how to get a good performance, and it's like watch Oppenheimer. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Watch Oppenheimer. Watch Oppenheimer. It's 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 amazing. Like and Killian Murphy. Killian, I know you don't listen to this podcast, but let me tell you something. Get used to getting a truckload of scripts at your door. 
Yeah. Cause not you've, you've gone from like that. Oh, that really underrated actor that always does good stuff to now you're going to be like, Oh, that actor that everybody wants to be. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Killian figure out, figure out the things you think. Okay. A figure out like the historic character you've always wanted to be and figure that out. And also, Pick your scripts. Like, just get ready to be anything you want for the next five and, years. And listen, so, I, have fun listen, with that. listen. Disney's gonna bug you about Star Wars and Marvel. Hold your oh, goddamn yeah, ground. They're, they're gonna <laughs> <laughs> hold your goddamn ground. Because what's fucked is you can see Killian Murphy saying yes to Star Wars. You can. See I mean, that. he's already you said he's already me. said like if Greta Gerwig makes a sequel to Barbie, he'll say yes to being a Ken. He'll be uh, like, yeah. I'll... You know what? Good for him. Yeah. Good for no, him. No, it's just one of those things where it's like, so my brother is a is a Zoomer. He's a Zoomer. Yeah. And I thought, I thought millennials loved Killian Murphy. Oh, no. Zoomers like want to fuck him. Let's be more clear. I had no, like, I had no idea that Killian Murphy was so popular with the Zoomers. Like, I was like, really? Peaky Blinders did that for him? And my brother just shows me TikTok and it's just a bunch yeah. of Killian no, Murphy. It's it's all the thirst the thirst montages for I've seen those. They're so crazy. Uh, it's him and um um Last of Us guy. Um Pedro Pascal. It's him, it's Killian Murphy and Pedro Pascal that the Zoomers are thirsty for. That's so like, weird. <laughs> but no, Pedro Pascal makes sense because he's really funny. Like that I because Zoomers love someone who's hot and funny, which he is. But Killian Murphy is gorgeous, and I never saw him as funny. But like, okay. like you know, it's bad when my brother comes up to me and goes like, "Man, I saw, I saw this." Uh, he saw like a a romantic comedy he did. And I'm like, mm, "You've seen this?" I'm like, funny. "No." He's like, "Oh, uh, it's directed by like apparently one of the Broken Lizard guys directed Killian Murphy in a comedy that was a love letter to like noir films." All right. That, Never that takes place it. in Didn't Chicago, know. and my brother just well, like let me let me let me try to find the name of it so that uh, you can watch it. I'm gonna look, yeah, I'll look it up. Yeah, like and it's uh it's uh it's it's not like it. I know it's the one of the guys from Broken Lizard. Uh, what was it called? Uh, was it earliness before? Was it? I'm assuming after 28 days later. Right? Yeah, it was after 28 days later, but before. Uh, let me see. Da, da, da. It wasn't. It, no, that was his first. Disco Pigs was his first movie, which I did watch, and it's very, very good. Is it good? I was curious. Yeah, it, it's very good. Uh, um, is it the delinquent season? Uh, um, no, no, no. It's. Oh yeah, he's in Girl with the Pearl Alien. He plays the love interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's also in Cold Mountain. I I totally forget that he's yes, in Cold Mountain. Yes, he is. Uh, it's called Watching the Detectives. And actually, he did do it after Batman Begins. Watching the it's it's him and Lucy Liu. My brother watched it. He really really liked it. Uh, Interesting. He really liked it, and I'm just I'm just there going like he he. It came out the same year as Sunshine. That's fucking hilarious. So 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 no. So I told I told him, hey, you need to watch Sunshine. You need to watch Red Eye. You need to watch. Oh, Red Eye's a blast. You need to watch Red Eye's so much fun. You need to fun. watch Disco Pig. Uh, you need to watch um, uh, 
uh, I'm assuming he's seen 20 days later, right? Yeah. And I told him you like, good. listen, I know, I know it might be weird, but watch breakfast on Pluto. It's really good. And then he goes like, have you seen watching the detectives? It was really funny. And I'm like, wait, what? I, I've never heard of that movie. He's like, Oh dude. It's like, he, he's like, like really into detective movies and it has a loose. Oh, is he in heart of the sea? Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was, uh, oh, um, what the guy the, I've heard that he's the guy who wrote, uh, the book, uh, what's it or no, 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 that wasn't him. That was, uh, I, he, yeah, no. but he's in heart of the sea. Oh, I've heard, I've never seen this, but I've heard the wind that shakes the barley is a really good war movie. He's dude. In. He talks about that in the video I sent you. Also, my brother had yeah. seen, I saw it and I told my brother to see it. And my brother goes like, my brother goes like, Man, that's such a fucked up time. And like, you want to see another movie that's about that? Watch uh, Banshees of Inisherin. That's no. If you really want to understand like the metaphor of Banshees of Inisherin, you need to watch The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Mm. Like literally, Mm. it's like, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's what that meant. Oh, I get it now. Yeah, you did kill the dog. (laughs) 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 Um. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's like, oh, you did mean to kill the dog. Yeah. Um, I, I on that I, or, no, yeah. I also love right before we we end the the episode. Yeah. I also love gotcha. that Oppenheimer's a hit, and immediately there's talk of twenty eight months later. I love it. I oh, love of course, it. Of course, there I is. They're like Killian, booby, baby, darling. N- here's a bunch of zeros. Put the number in front of it for your check, and, a, a, and a, work a, it a, out. N- oh, dude. Dude, apparently well, Alex Garland is writing it. Of course he's writing it. Alex Garland will... I wonder if he's, he's going to direct it or if Danny Boyle's going to direct Ooh, it. Ooh, if Alex Garland directs it, I will watch it. I will, like, be interested. Really? Over Danny, Danny Boyle? Boyle? Here's my thing. I love Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle is a fantastic director. He's He's very, very, very good. I think we need to keep the trend of a different director approaching each one of these if this becomes a trilogy. Ooh. Genuinely. Ooh. So let let a different director do it because a different director did the second one. Although that's not fair because Danny Boyle directed the best part of the second one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm no, talking about. No, I do. About. And he, he only directed the second one because, or he didn't direct the second one because he was too busy with Sunshine. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's so funny. And that's so fu- that's so funny. Can you imagine on the set of twenty of uh of Sunshine, Killian's like, "Hey, what took you so long? You're you're late." And he's like, "I was just finishing up a scene for twenty eight weeks later." And he's like, "Bruh, why am I not in that?" He's like, "You don't worry about it. You're gonna be in this." <laughs> All right, guys. This has been. What do you think? I'm Al. And I am. Oh, damn it. Okay, we'll have to cut that part out. <laughs> IMC, Destroyer of Worlds. Good night, everybody. Look before me in despair. Good night, everybody.